Good to see you. Good to have those of you who are joining us online. It's good to see some new but familiar faces with us. What a blessing this is today. Those of you that are not with us today, we miss you certainly, but we want you to be safe and uh, do what you know to do to keep yourself healthy. But uh, we are just greatly rejoicing in the fact that we have the ability and the privilege to be back together again. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, speaking of privileges, I trust that you enjoyed Brother Samuel last week and Brother, uh, excuse me, Brother William last week and Samuel the week before. Boy, we got some hard hitters here, don't we? That's what somebody said to me afterwards. Man, you were just knocking it out of the park. Well, praise the Lord, I'm not knocking it out of the park. Those guys did a great job. And uh, praise the Lord for brothers like that. And uh, uh, just a wonderful ministry, the bridge ministry. And by the way, if you hopefully you got the email. And also, by the way, if you're not on our email list, if you're not getting emails regularly, like daily from us, my devotions, whatnot, from Pastor Hamp, uh, emails during the week, please let us know as we want to make sure we give you the information that's pertinent and necessary. Okay, So um, what a blessing those guys were. Uh, Bridge Ministry, fantastic ministry to give your money to. Uh, you can go on the Bridge website and do that on your own. Uh, I don't often give to you those kinds of thoughts, but I just uh, feel that it's very necessary. I asked Brother William uh, what was their greatest need uh, as he was leaving the building the uh, last week, and he said, without question, we need a new well. Uh, they have been operating off of, uh, my understanding is, one well uh, for a long time and feeding these buildings for all these years, and they're desperately in need of another well. About seven to $9,000, somewhere in there. You know that if you've had to have, to have that work done. Uh, but, you know, $10 here, $5 here, $20, whatever the Lord puts on your heart is a great way to uh, support a ministry like that. So that's available for you. Now, just a couple other announcements. Uh, we have not had communion in a long time. Uh, together as a church. And so on August the 9th, that'll be our second Sunday. That's our normal uh, time that we will have communion anyway. And we're going to do communion. Uh, But it's going to be a little different. We're not going to pass out the plates. There will be the individual cups. And uh, those are the little cups where you tear the top off. And on the layer, step number one, tear the top off. You get the little wafer that tastes like um, styrofoam. But hey, that's okay. Uh, We'll use it. It might be a little better than styrofoam. And then you tear it again and you get the juice uh, down there. And they even thought to, I tested this, they even thought to not fill the cup so full so when you rip that thing off, it doesn't spill all over you. Okay, so that's really good on whomever's part that put that together. So we'll have those in the back on August the 9th. You'll pick one up, and we'll take part in communion together, and then you'll drop it in the trash can. For those of you that are watching by uh, way of being at home, you can just gather yourself something uh, as a, a way to symbolize communion as well. Okay, And you can set that up yourself. So that's coming. Also, uh, this week, if you haven't already received it, this week we'll be making sure that you get uh, information again on the next phase of where we are with the church. Uh, We sent that all out to you some months ago. Pastor Hamp sent that out to you. Uh, We're going to be sending that out again with just some reiterations of what phase three for us would look like. Okay? Some people have been asking about that. All right. Well, I'm sure there's much more we could talk about, uh, but it's just a joy to see your faces this morning and be together in the house of the Lord. So let's go to him in prayer, shall we? Father, our hearts are always, always, always overwhelmed as we come to you uh, together, whether it be through uh, the Internet in our homes or whether it be through uh, sitting here together. Lord, what a joy, what a blessing, what an amazing, amazing creation, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, thank you for the joy that we have of gathering this morning. Thank you for the messages we've heard these last couple weeks. Thank you for dear brothers who serve you faithfully. And uh, we just pray now that you bless them as they've blessed us over the last, uh, over their ministry times. And now we would ask that you'd open our hearts that we might hear your word and speak clearly to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to take us back into our mini-series, if you will, on divorce and remarriage, just simply because there's lots of information to cover. Uh, It's been three weeks since I was preaching, and so I want to reiterate the importance of what we left off with last time. And so I've titled this, or I've titled this, uh, God's View of Marriage, Part 2. Okay, so real thoughtful on my part, took a lot of deep concentration, but we got there. Okay, God's view of marriage part two. I specifically, though, want to answer the question that we left with last time, or it really wasn't a question, but it was a statement that God hates divorce. Uh, I want to answer a question, though, as to why God hates divorce. And I think it'll be very foundational for us, and hopefully it'll give you a far different picture and view of what marriage really is meant to be uh, in this life and what God intends from his perspective. So... Before you get too comfortable, let's stand in honor of the word and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. We'll be on this again next week, so uh, this will be very, very solidified in our minds. Jesus preaching now to the crowd on the mountain, he says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, you may be seated. Praise the Lord for his word. Okay, now, this may not sound like an apt illustration, but I I think it will be an apt illustration for our day today as we lead into this subject. Uh, You may not know this, but back in 2013... You've been hearing about this lately, but back in 2013, the foundation, the organization Black Lives Matter uh, was started, okay? So much people, much information in the news, a lot of information going out. uh, You see signs all over the place about joining Black Lives Matter. Well, as Christians, what we need to understand, number one, is of course Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, I'm going to be, like I told the first service this morning, like Brother William, somebody say something, right? I appreciated that from Brother William, keeping you involved. Of course, black lives matter. We would say as God's people, all lives matter. Amen? I mean, this is why we preach and teach the foundation of Scripture, even among the unborn. You know, God's people are the proponents of rescuing and saving the unborn. That's why we so speak so against abortion, where the world will say, and we just had, my wife and I just had a conversation with somebody uh, um, some weeks ago, that uh, the world would believe that a baby is not a real baby, or not a real person until they're actually born and separated from the mother. But you and I as Christians hold to the truth that the person is a person even while yet in the womb. And so, of course, lives matter. All lives matter. Every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has the holiness of God written all over them. We would stand for that. Every person who has ever been born is made by God and for his glory. Did you know that? 
If you didn't know that this morning, I hope you do know that and you will know that before, after you leave here or by the time you leave here, that you were made in the image of God for his glory, meaning that skin color doesn't matter. It's all external stuff. Geographical location doesn't matter. Demographics don't matter. All lives matter. And so you and I would say as God's people, of course black lives matter. There's no question about that. You can't be a Christian and believe anything else. We would also say that white supremacy is wrong, right? There is nothing right about supremacy over any person. I'm not talking about the ability to do a job or to perform some function. There are certainly levels of skill and abilities. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about uh, there shouldn't be bosses and that kind of thing. That's, that's not the issue. I'm talking about the makeup of a human being that matters in the sense that no matter what your color is or where you're from, it all matters. But that's not the question. The question this morning that I'm posing to us is do we adopt and be part of the foundation or the organization, the movement, Black Lives Matter. And that's where I would have to draw the line. I want to read from the website of the Black Lives Matter organization. And and I'm telling you this again, just to reiterate, for illustration purposes as it leads into our subject, but also because you're seeing so much about this. It's important for you to know uh, that this is not just a good slogan. But there is something behind all of this that we would not agree with biblically. If you go to the website and you look under the head menu at the top, you'll find uh, something that will lead to the about the organization. And this is what it says under that. And there's lots of information, but this is the part that I wanted to bring out because it fits our subject for today. Hashtag Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murder. Black Lives Matter Foundation, Inc. is a global organization in the U.S., U.K., and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state. Okay, now underline that because we've just had two messages on the authority of man that God puts in place. And they say, and vigilantes, by combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. We affirm the lives of black, queer, and trans folk, disabled folk, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum. Our network centers those on those who have been marginalized with black liberation movements. Okay, that's under the About tab. Now, if you go to What We Believe tab, this is what it says, among other things. We are guided by the fact that all black lives matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, imagination status or location. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are self-reflective and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. Now that term cisgender, I had to look this up, simply means it's a term for people whose gender identity matches their sex assigned at birth. In other words, for someone who identifies as a woman at birth and was assigned female at birth is a cisgender woman. 
Okay, But listen to what they're saying. We want to dismantle that and uplift black trans folks, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism and environments in which men are centered. Now, again, I bring that up because the intro sounds good. Okay? The intro sounds very good until you get to the foundation of the organization. Uh, to join this organization or the foundation that's anything like this promotes really a clear violation of the foundation of the word of God. And you and I know, as all these years we've been together, that we are to uphold the word of the Lord. And let me just go back by way of review and just help you to see a couple things from Scripture about what God says about the transgender movement, about the the homosexual lifestyle, the gay lifestyle specifically. In Genesis chapter 19, you know the story well. This is when uh, God comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you know the reason why God comes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? That's right. It's because of perversion. In verse 4 of chapter 19, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, and that's when uh, the men came into Lot's home, Abraham's nephew, both young and old. So this was a big population spread of the people. All the people from every quarter. This was a massive crowd. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Okay, That was a purposeful plan on the part of these ungodly people to have some type of gross sexual encounter with them. And so the response to that is in verse 13 of chapter 19. For we are about to destroy this place, the angels say, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now that word outcry is not, oh God, come and see how great we are. The outcry is from their sexual, sexually deviant lifestyles that God will not stand for. In Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, let's be clear. God is not saying that a woman can't wear her husband's shirt, okay? that she can't wear pants, that she can't wear things that uh, are things that a man wears. What God is saying is there should be a very clear and unique distinction between male and female. That's the way God created us in, its, in our uniqueness, and that's what God intends for us. He says to do otherwise is to be an abomination. That word literally means to be a disgusting thing in the eyes of the Lord, whether it's for some ritual or some ethnical sense. It doesn't matter. It is an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is also an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 verse 27 says in the same way men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. He's talking about in the current day where and over time how this sexual growth of life and the belief that it's okay grew to such a place where it became normal. And we're certainly seeing that in our day to day. 
But the Lord goes on to say through Paul, they received in their own persons the due penalty of their error. These are very specific things that God is talking about. And then again in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church, and you have to understand that the Corinthian church was a church that had come out of a very ungodly background. They were very involved in all of these kinds of sins. And so the Apostle addresses them, and here's what he says, Do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? No one who is unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we need Jesus. Amen? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. That's all talking about the, uh, the sensual parts of us, the things that are, cause us to gravitate towards sinful things. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about the lifestyle that stays in that vein, whether it's in the sexual realm or even the life that would be just ungodly in other ways. That's why he brings out drunkenness and swindlers and all these things. The person who lives their life that way continuously without repentance and and turning themselves to Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice this in verse 11 though. Paul says, "Some such were some of you. Again, he's talking to the church. He's saying, look, some of you had this very testimony about your life. This was you. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were effeminate. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were adulterers. But notice what he says in verse 11. You were washed. You were washed by the blood of Christ. You were forgiven. You were sanctified. That word means set apart. You were removed from that. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Aren't you so thankful for that today? That we were of such a life that God still in his grace and his mercy would be willing to rescue us from it and we would turn from that knowing that it is a damnation upon our souls not because we're better than somebody else but because we just simply understand that this is against God's word. And people will say, well, yeah, but God loves me. And I actually had a conversation with somebody about this very subject just recently. They said, but God loves me no matter what I do and who I am because Jesus came and died for my sins. And so basically they're saying, I can pretty much live any way that I want because Jesus paid for my sins. I had a friend of mine years ago that I worked with that was raised in the Catholic faith, and he said that. I remember him telling me one time he came in pretty hungover on a Monday morning. And he says, and I kind of questioned him about it, and he said, well, yeah, you know, in the Catholic Church, as long as I go to confessional, I can live any way I want to live as long as the priest forgives me. And so that's what the belief is. And so some people hold to that same kind of thing, even with Jesus. Hey, Jesus came and died on the cross, so I can live any way that I want to live. But Jude says, no, we're not to turn the grace of God into a license for ourselves to sin. I would be foolish to do that. Now, again, why am I bringing all this up? Well, I bring it up because, again, you're seeing signs everywhere. You're you're having to react to it in conversation, and you're feeling the weight of these subjects, and this one especially. So as God's people, we know all lives matter. That's not a question. But to join the organization is something that a Christian really cannot do because it defies the word of the Lord in multiple ways. I mean, these people rebel against the purpose of God. They are very anti-God. 
They really promote hate in its own way. They promote violence. They promote anti-law. And we just spent a couple weeks on the importance of obeying law. And you saw that from Scripture. They really violate the nuclear family and what the family is to be all about. They are anti-men leadership. It's really a feminist organization designed to suppress men. And that's just as ungodly as men suppressing women. And so that's just not something that we can be a part of. And front, I guess I would say, to bring it to an illustration for today, is it's really a satanic frontal attack against the foundation and institution of marriage. That's really what it is. It is a frontal attack by Satan. And by the way, if you haven't figured this out by now, all of what we're experiencing, let's not forget, is a spiritual attack on the church. You say, what do you mean by that? And I don't have time to preach through all this, but you understand that everything in this life, remember God says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, right? But against powers and principalities and spiritual forces in high places. Everything that we experience in an ungodly way in this world is an, is an attack by Satan on God's people, on God mainly, and the church. It's very clear, and it's going to become abundantly clear as we progress towards the end of times. You remember our study in Revelation. We see that. We know that. We are seeing it being unfolded. Satan wants to get to the church. So what does he do? He promotes the things that are ungodly. He causes people to believe it's normal. And ultimately, the people who are going to be the freaks and the weird ones will be the church who preach against it. And that will cause problems for the church. And all that's going to lead us to the end times. Okay, So you can go back and listen to those messages in Revelation if you need to, to get more clarity on that. Well, some people will say, well, Pastor, you're just promoting your own hatred of women. Uh, no, certainly not doing that. Nothing short of, nothing close to that. We've already said man and women are creations of God. Therefore, everything is good, right? That he created in that realm it makes them both good. Uh, It was God who made them, which makes it good, and he has created order. God is a God of structure and symmetry, right? God kind of likes the pocket on the right and the left of the shirt. Don't get lost in that. I'm trying to just keep you awake here a little bit, okay? I'm just being silly. But God is a God of order. You remember we are told in the scriptures that God is not the God of confusion. That's our enemy, Satan. God is the one who wants our minds to be logical and to act reasonably so that man looks like man and woman looks like woman. That's God's basic understanding. We are to know our place, not dominance, but mutual submission to one another. Okay? So we don't want to lose the meaning in all that. So again, the question is, can I join the belief that black lives matter? Of course you can. Yes, in that sense, Black Lives Matter as a Christian. I cannot, though, follow an organization like that. All right, now, what does all that have to do with divorce and marriage? Well, I've kind of already begun that thought with you uh, is just to help you to realize that this whole movement is another attack against the institution of marriage, which is what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 5, the foundational purpose of what marriage is all about. So let's get on that subject. If you were listening last Sunday, you heard Brother William make a very profound yet simple statement. And that statement was, God is looking for Jesus in his people. Do you remember that? God is looking for his son in his people. God is 
interested in knowing where Jesus is in the life of every person. That's very important. In the way we live our lives, in the way we talk to one another, in the way we react to one another, the things that we do in this life, where we go, how we present ourselves, Brother William was saying to us, should be a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Did we get that from that message last time at least? That was a very, very important point. Now, one of the main ways, though, that God wants to see Jesus in us is in our marriages, okay? In our marriages. Now, if you're not married today, I hope that you'll at least take some notes and take it back to people who are married, or if you know people who are looking to get married, this would be a great message for them to start out with as a foundation, Marriage is one of the premier ways that Jesus is to be shown through us. You remember back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, I've already alluded to this, but let's just get our minds back on it again. It was God in his mind who created the uniqueness of the human race. And by the way, let's just use that for clarity. Uh, There is only one race, right? We should get rid of that ideology of different races. There is only one race, that's the human race. Amen? There's the animal kingdom, there's the rest of nature, but then there is the human race. All right? So God creates the human race. Nowhere in Scripture do we see him creating another race. Colors, yes. Nations, yes. But no races. And he created them male and female. They were unique to all the other created things. This is where we were last time. He brought them together as one flesh. And he said this is to be a permanent, joined no termination, stuck to union. And the idea of that joined was just that, that God sticks us to each other. That doesn't mean we're glue, but that means we come together, as he will put it, as one flesh. There is a spiritual dimension to this, but there's also a biological dimension to this. We see both of them. One, the biological is that children come from this union, right? And that's God's plan. Be fruitful and multiply. There's the biological plan. The spiritual plan we'll talk about in just a minute is one. God hates it, we learned last time, when man breaks that apart. When mankind tears apart what God has put together. But our question this morning is, why? Why does God hate it so badly? Why does the scripture say that God hates divorce? Well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 as our launching place It's a very familiar passage. You'll remember it well. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Here's the answer. Number one, because marriage, and you should really put this somewhere in your head or in your Bible somewhere, marriage is a divine symbol. Marriage is a divine symbol. Now let's take a look at that. Notice how Paul writes this in his instruction. The way the apostle writes the letters typically are, especially you see this in Ephesians, the first three chapters are theology, they're doctrine. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. The latter three chapters are for the living out of that doctrine. In other words, the application of that doctrine. And so he's now in the application point, and he says, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Now, we would often want to stop right there, right? Oh, no, 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 no. Ain't no man ahead of me, right? I've actually met ladies that don't even want any of this in their marriage vows. 
But notice what God says. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Do you hear the main foundational line there? What's he doing? The apostle is bringing the people of the church back to the critical understanding that this marriage, your work in the relationship so far, wives, is to be on the foundation of Christ and the church. Okay? Let's go to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Listen, ladies, the reason that you submit to your husbands is because you are a reflection of how Christ submits to Jesus. That's what marriage is representing for you. For you as the wife in the relationship are a picture. You are a pageant. You are a play. You're a display of Christ and his relationship to his bride. You are the bride in this sense in display to to your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, you are to love your wives. How? Just like Christ loved his bride, the church. You see the same thing. Men, you are to love your wives, not just because you're commanded to love your wives. That's where people rebel. We don't like to be told what to do. So God gives to us this understanding that, listen, I'm commanding this of you because it's right, but also because I'm trying to display something through you. I'm created a model here. I'm giving to you a picture for the world to see of the oneness that I have with my church. That's what marriage is to be. And why is all of that? What is Christ doing in this? Well, he's doing it because he loves his church. He loves his bride. And we are to be the reflection of his, get this, continued love, his permanent love. That's what we're to do. Notice in verses 28 through 30, he instructs the husbands again. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. You understand the intensity of that, don't you? I mean, we put a lot of effort into our bodies. We're always concerned about the calories. We're always concerned about our fat intake. We're always concerned about whether the food is fried or whether it's boiled or whether it's coming from a good place or not because we don't like it when we don't look good, right? So he says, look, you understand that. So in the same way, I want you to care for your wife. But we're saying, why, Paul? Why? Why do I need to do that? My sinful flesh doesn't want to be kind to this woman that irritates me. And Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. What do you mean, Paul? he's, He's arguing for the oneness here. He's talking about oneness. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. That's what we were just talking about. Just as, notice this, Christ does the church. He's constantly pointing us back to Christ and the church. Here's the married couple, but the picture of the married couple is to point to Christ and the church. Over and over again he does this. Why? Because we are members of his body. Listen, Jesus cares for us. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus cares for us. He nurtures us, doesn't he? 
just like a good faithful parent would, good faithful husband would rather in this context. He provides for us. He feeds us. He's told us, don't worry about anything. Matthew chapter 7, right? Matthew chapter 6. In other words, he sustains us in all ways. Why? Because we are a part of his body. That's what he's saying through Paul to the church. Listen, your marriage, ladies, I want you to submit to your husband because you're one with him. Husbands, I want you to love your wife because you're one with them. Why, Paul? Because you are an example of how I am with my church. That's why you're married. That's why you're married. And listen, he's not going to stop caring for his body, is he? I mean, is Jesus going to stop caring for himself? Of course not. He's God. He has too great of a love for himself and for us. Listen to how Paul describes marriage in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. And let's think about that for just a second. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, a mystery in the scripture, when you see that, is often given to us, typically in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. In other words, the word mystery is used as a way to help us to understand it's something that we don't get. That's why it's a mystery. But then it'll be revealed typically in the New Testament. But Paul here is saying, listen, this idea of oneness, Christ in the church, this is a mystery. I don't have an answer for you, but what I am talking about is Christ in the church. In other words, when you husband, you wife come together, there is a oneness there that I cannot define for you. And you and I can't define it either, can we? I mean, we have the feelings and we have the emotion of it all. Uh, We long to be with our spouse. We enjoy our spouses. And we, we know what that means to miss them and to feel a sense of loss when they're not around. It's a mystery though. You can't define that. You can't put that into words. So that's what Paul's saying here. But really what I'm talking about is I'm talking about the same thing with Christ in the church. Explain that. Can we explain the oneness between Christ and the church? I can't. I don't know of anybody that can explain that in its fullest sense, in the deepest spiritual way. But that's what he's talking about here. Verse 33. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. In other words, when we look at marriage, we often see two people, right? That's typical. And that's rational. That's good thinking. But Christ sees one person. Explain that. I can't explain that either. Spiritually, it is illogical, the Lord is saying, to divide this oneness. That's the power of this oneness in the mind of God. It is illogical. We talked about that last time. It's like ripping away the flesh. It's like ripping a leg off and saying the body will be okay. Well, we would never agree to that. There has to be work done to save the body when there's some kind of a traumatic event that happens. So the idea is with the church is that without Christ, there's nothing. We're, we, we've been ripped away. We can't function in a right way without Jesus. Would you agree with that? Somebody, say something. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Brother William. I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of that. Somebody, say something. I mean, that's good stuff, right? Listen, spiritually, and, and, and we just got to, if you're not a deep thinker, just humor me this morning. 
and try to be a deep thinker? To be one with somebody? That's kind of strange, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, God says spiritually, I'm telling you, we are one with him. He's the head and we're the body, right? Isn't that what his word says? But there are some pictures of this one. This I've already alluded to some of them. For, for example, when two people have been together for a long time, those of you who have had long marriages, boy, you just you kind of think the same. My wife and I say, stop being inside my head. I was just getting ready to say that, right? And it just seems like the more we're together, the more we just, we just get it. We understand without even using words. You understand what I'm talking about. Uh, we act similar. We start sounding similar. Have you ever seen people who have been married for a long time they start looking alike? <laughs> now, as I was saying in the early service, I hope, at least in my hopefulness, is that the one will start looking better like the other one than the other one looking negative like the other one. <laughs> if you if you get what I'm trying to say there. But that is true. How about this? When one spouse dies, there's a sense of loss there that nobody can explain, right? You can't define it. You often will come to people who have lost their spouses. We, Debbie and I were just at a family night on Friday night uh, of a man uh, who had passed away, 60 years of age. Um, what do you say? You ever, you, you, sometimes people don't go to things like that because they're like, I, I don't know what to say. Well, the reason you don't know what to say is because there's no way to describe this. There's no words that you can offer really. And then we should try. And I want to encourage you to always go and show your love because it's helpful. Uh, but we don't know what this oneness is really like. So when that person die, dies, often the one who's left behind, their life is shortened. Oftentimes that happens. There's pain, that, again, as I said, that can't be understood because that union is broken. It's not always the case, but often that's certainly the case. So we get it. We understand a little bit of what's happening here. You know, sometimes... Uh, people will go through such deep uh, depression even uh, when they've lost their spouse because, and they'll refer to them as what? Their soulmate? Well, what does that mean? We can't define that. We just understand it. We get it internally. Well, that's what the Lord is talking about here. We become one with him, but we often miss that too. And that's why I wanted to go over this. And that's why Jesus is bringing up what he's bringing up. So we need to understand primarily that our marriage is not just a human thing. It's not just a human thing. This is not just something to go out and just spend a lot of money on. This is not something especially just to fulfill you. This is a divine thing. Listen, marriage is a divine gift. It's divine. It's from the Lord. Now, we're talking about married couples that could have a whole other message about the life of a single person and God gifts people to be single. That's another thing. But marriage is the divine thing. Marriage is not to be anything else. It is a symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the display here. It's an illustration, a human illustration of that relationship. And so when you lose sight of that truth... That's when problems begin to have. It's like happen. That's like uh, that's when uh, the whole symbol of marriage is is completely broken. So we begin to understand why the Lord hates divorce so badly because He's saying to us, "Listen, your marriage is about me. It's not about you. 
It's about me. And Paul would say something similar to this in the letter of 2 Corinthians 11.1. This whole idea of Christ in the church, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy I, and because he, he's saying to them, I want you to live a holy life. I'm jealous for you to live a pure life out of the debauched life that you came from. I promised you to one husband, this is strange language, and people will read this and say, what is he talking about? I promised you to one husband. Well, who's that husband? To Christ, he says. I promised you to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. In other words, he's saying, look, you are the church. You are the bride of Christ and you are to be pure. No running after idols. No adulterating yourselves or anything differently. Why? Why, God? Why, Paul? Because the purpose of marriage is to reflect the purity of Christ and his love, the church. That's why he wants us to be pure. And we know to be pure, we have to be pure in order to enter in the kingdom of heaven. That's why Christ came, because we can't be pure on our own. He had to give us his righteousness. So there is that purity in that sense. But Paul is saying, you need to understand that as Christ's bride, the church, he wants you to be pure not running after anything else. God is a jealous God with righteous indignation. Why is that? Because he wants his body to be holy. He wants to keep his name holy. He wants his followers to be holy. And to violate that calling defiles the very purpose for which you and I have been called. That's so foundational, which is to be one with him. That's why we were called. He called us by name to be one with him. Notice in the garden, Jesus' prayer was this in John 17, speaking to the Father. He's now not just speaking to his own disciples around him. I do not ask on these alone, for these alone, but on those who believe in me through their word, 21, that they may all be one. Now watch this. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. Boy, that is a profound statement. Jesus in his agony in the garden before he goes to the crucifixion, he bows his face to the ground and he says these words of you and me to the Father. Father, please create in them the oneness with us like you and I have. Why? Notice the verse so that the world may believe what you sent me, Jesus is saying. The oneness of God is illustrated in an earthly sense through marriage. The joining together of a man and a woman is to be a picture of the oneness that Christ has with his church, which ultimately is made up of you and me. So marriage is a divine symbol. Very clear should we see that. Clearly should we see that. It's the dedication of himself to his bride. And boy, Jesus is dedicated to his bride. And so marriage symbolizes that divine union between God and man. And that really helps us a lot because it tells us marriage was not designed by God, listen, just to make us happy. That's a newsflash. But God never instituted marriage to make you and me happy. 
Now, he certainly wants us to be happy. But that's not his main prerogative. He didn't institute marriage to keep us from being lonely, predominantly. He did say it's not good that man should be alone. And that's part of it. But that was not predominantly his purpose. We are happy in our marriages, beloved, because we both understand in that relationship that our relationship with Christ is the priority. That's why we're happy. We don't put so much pressure on the other one to think that, oh, you have to make me happy, or if you don't make me happy, I'm going to leave. Well, God never intended your spouse to make you happy. Now, I'm not saying that they should be mean as a snake, okay? I mean, that should be obvious in the teachings of Scripture that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves and all that we've just talked about. But primarily, we're not married for those reasons. Our relationship of joy with one another and happiness comes when we find our contentment personally in Christ. When He is our priority. You know, people have often come to me for marriage counseling and usually it's because they're not getting along. And that happens, right? We all have those scenarios. But usually that not getting along is down to one foundational truth, which is because they just simply don't understand what their marriage is all about. It usually goes along the lines of, well, he or she or well, or, or uh, or, you know, I can't, or no way, or they, he, she, you get it? That's typically how it goes. Now, being human myself, I get that understand that. We all understand that. But usually people are upset because they're missing the point of what the focus should be. Our focus should always be on Christ first. And when our focus is on Christ first, then our union together with our spouse is not predicated on what they give to me because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything I could ever hope for anyway, right? It would be great if our spouse could do all of that, but that's not possible. And so we're finding the answer to our question. Number one is that why does God hate divorce? Is because it destroys the picture of the permanence in his relationship with us between himself and the church, which, by the way, is made up of you and me, right? So in other words... When God is talking about the church, yes, he's talking about the church collectively, but guess who makes up the church? You and you and you and you and you and you, right? Each of you make up the church. So he's not just talking about the group. The beauty of all this is, is that God makes this very personal, meaning he's committed to you, not just the organization. He's committed to you individually, meaning he will never... What does he say? Leave you or what? Forsake you. I'll never leave you. Or you say, oh, he's talking about the church. No, not just the church. He's talking about you, the members of the church, because you collectively make up that organization. So individually he's saying, I will never never forsake you. Never, never, never. You say never, never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. Listen, even when you're ugly, right? And you ugly, (laughs) to coin the phrase. I'm ugly. You know, even when your makeup's messed up, even when you're not buff and all good looking, 
Yeah, he loves us. Even when we've had way too much to eat of the wrong food substance. Right? And we get that extra padding around our bodies. God loves us. Hey, listen to this. Even when we're prideful and we think we're better than everybody else, when we're selfish, when we're irritating, and beloved, we can be irritating to one another, right? We can be irritating to our spouses when we're more concerned about ourselves. He will forever and always love you and get this, stick with you, right? There's that word joined. He will stick with you. How about this? Even when you walk away from him, when you walk away from him, he will always be there with you. He will never walk away from you. Let's just say it this way. God will never divorce you. Never. He will never divorce you. Aren't you thankful for God like that? Now listen carefully. This is why, all of what I've said is why, divorce is never the answer for resolving conflict it's never the answer why why is it never the answer because number one marriage your marriage is a picture it is given to you yes to enjoy one another but primarily to be a display to the world that Christ is the husband of his bride who will never 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 leave her that's what your marriage pictures So divorce is never the answer. Can you imagine if the Lord Christ would say to us by banner this morning dropping out of the ceiling, Laurel Hill, I divorce you. No longer will you be my bride. Thank the Lord. His word teaches us he'll never do that. I can't imagine such a thing. Divorce is never God's way of resolving conflict because through Christ and his power, listen, any marriage can be saved. Any marriage. I had a uh, professor, an undergraduate, who taught marriage and family, and he sounded this alarm over and over and over again. His name was Dr. Phil Captain. Loved him to death. He was my advisor, and in class he would often say, guys and girls, listen, we were young at the time. He said, any relationship is salvageable through Jesus Christ. He said, get that in your head. Any relationship is salvageable through Jesus Christ. Which means marriages fail because Jesus is not the focus. I mean, let's just be honest. Jesus is not the focus. My needs become or come first before the needs that God wants me to have. Have you ever noticed or ever met, and this is kind of a challenge, There may be some oddball case out there, but it's not going to fit the definition. Have you ever met any married couple who loved Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength? Individually. Both couples, both people loved Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, served him faithfully out of their own sacrifice to him because they knew he was Lord. Have you ever heard a couple like that that was married say, I want a divorce? No. You're not going to find that. Because Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the source. Jesus is who holds it all together, and they know that. 
He's the one that brought them together and he's the one that will keep it together. Let's look for a few minutes at the Old Testament example of Hosea and we'll go through this quickly. I just want to show you from Hosea, an Old Testament passage, something that's very alarming. And what this is going to do, it's going to help you to see how God loves his people in an Old Testament sense, Hosea chapter 1. And I'm going to have to talk us through this kind of quickly so that you stay with me. But it's one of the clearest pictures of how God views marriage. And he's going to give to us how we should deal with a partner who's been wayward. Or how to handle a bad relationship, if you want to put it that way. So the context is Hosea is a prophet to the ten northern tribes called Israel. The Israel or the nation, the Hebrews were divided way back when, many years ago in the Old Testament because of rebellion. Ten northern tribes went just that. They went north. God called them Israel. The southern tribes were Judah and Benjamin. They stayed in the south. That's where Jerusalem was. Okay? Hosea, both of them had prophets to the groups. Hosea was a prophet to the northern tribe. God says to him, Hosea, I want you in verse 2 to go find a prostitute and marry her. If I were him, I would be saying, do you want to run that by me again? I mean, can you imagine that? I want you to go find a prostitute and I want you to marry her. And her name was Gomer, we learned. And Hosea obeys that. In fact, we're told very quickly through these verses that he has three children by her. And all of them are negative names because of how Israel has lived. God says, I want you to name child one, two, and three over succession different names because this will be a reflection of how I am seeing Israel, my bride, right now. It's very negative. And in the midst of all of Hosea's life, as he becomes the pageant, this display for Israel in his life with Hosea, she goes out and still plays the harlot, trying to find that man of her dreams or whatever she's doing. I guess when she thought she could have it all and Hosea just wasn't the guy for her, I don't know. You know, we could put a lot of thoughts in there. But Hosea remained faithful. Why? Because he was first faithful to God. That's number one. He understood that he was first faithful to God. And Hosea forgave her. Time and time again he forgave her. Why? Because God had forgiven him. Because he knew of what God had done for him and he knew that God was a forgiving God. And I hope you hear this this morning. No matter what she did, Hosea loved her. He was gracious to her. He was merciful to her. He was compassionate to her simply because he loved her. Because she was his wife. She was his wife. In fact, at one point, he even paid her bills for her. He traipsed along behind her and went into the dollar store and paid for this and went to Harris Teeter and paid for that and wherever she couldn't pay her bill, he followed behind her and paid her bills while she was living this way. And we're shaking our heads saying, man, alive. Who in the world would do that? Eventually, she would be sold into slavery and he would go and buy her back. Now, man, imagine this just for a minute. You as the man who loves this woman out of obedience to God goes to the slave market and you see your wife stripped naked standing before a bunch of other men being auctioned off like a piece of, like a cattle or a cow or some animal. Imagine that. 
And Hosea goes and he pays the price for her and he buys her back. His wife! Did he have to do that? No. But he did it. Because God was using Hosea in his life to present himself and his love that he has for his people. The interesting thing is in all of this, Hosea had every right to cast her out. I mean, the law of Moses was very clear. God had given the concession through Moses. We'll talk about all that next time. He had given the concession to let her loose, to turn her loose, and you and I would be saying, yeah, Hosea, get rid of this chick. I mean, she is bad news. She's just going to break your heart again. You go, what? You're going to bring her back in and she's just going to traipse off again. Can't you hear that? Man, Hosea's probably scratching his chin saying, yeah, probably will. I mean, she's proven that pattern. But Hosea's not focused on obedience to the relationship, this relationship. Hosea's focused on the obedience to this relationship. And God said, this is what I want you to do. And Hosea listened. But watch this. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, now, after we get through a couple passages where God pronounces judgment on Israel, he says, I'm going to remove myself from Israel. But what he is doing there is what he often does with us. He allows us to go into our sin to bring judgment on us to cause us to turn around. Okay? That's why we go through what we do when we're in our sinfulness. So God can use our sin to bring us back. And this is what happens in verse 14. Now therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Imagine that. And I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor. He's talking about Israel. As a door of hope and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. In other words, when Israel sees her sin, God will have mercy on her. And that's coming. It's coming. This was an Old Testament prophecy, but there's coming a day where Israel will see her sin. We know this to be true. God is not done with Israel, contrary to what some teach and believe, that the church has superseded Israel. That is not true biblically. God will use Israel again. He will restore her. Why? Why will God restore Israel? Because he made a promise. And God fulfills his promises. Now stay with me on this because this is going to become our next point. God made a promise to Abraham that the nation of Israel would become his people. And guess what? That's all God needs is the fact that he made a promise. And that's all Hosea needs is the promise that he made to his wife to go do exactly what God had called him to do. And so God uses Hosea to show this divine picture of the oneness between himself and Israel and the oneness between himself and his church. And he puts two people in front of a preacher as others come to watch the ceremony and says, what you are really seeing here, folks, is a picture of my faithfulness to my bride. And here's a human illustration to show you. That's the power of marriage. That's what marriage is all about. And God uses that as a divine picture, even though, listen, even though his people prostitute themselves after other gods all the time, all the time, he is faithful to his promises, which is the next reason. Why does God hate divorce? Because he is faithful to his promise. Because he promised. 
He promised you and me that we would always be with him, that he would never leave us or forsake us. Marriage becomes that human illustration, and Hosea proves it, that no matter what Gomer did, he always loved her. That's what God's commandment was to him. Go, go get her, go get her, go get her, go get her. Prove, show the people that this is what real relationship is like. Why? Because of one reason. She was his wife. And that's all the reason that we need, beloved. The one that we made the commitment to. So God is saying, I am faithful to my people. You be faithful to your spouse. I am faithful to the end. You be faithful to the end. And one day there's going to be restoration, meaning this, your relationship's not perfect now, but one day there's going to be a perfect union in heaven. Not because we're good enough, but because God loves his people. The people whom he made a promise. My question to you is, and myself, is how many times have you and I adulterated our relationship with God? How many times have we done that? How many times have we failed him? How many? How many times have we forsaken him? How many times have we turned to other gods? The God of the the time, the God of whatever is more important in this moment, the God of money, so much more important. So the money, the time of energy or the God of energy, the God of my interests over the interests of God. It happens all the time. God will call to us to be the church, to be his bride, and we'll give in to the false idolatry and adulterate, adulterize ourselves and our relationship with him. But guess what? He has never in all of that turned away from you and me, has he? Never. Is God there when you call to him? Every time. Every time. When our hearts are broken and we realize we've sinned, God is there. Listen, this is how we are to respond to our spouses. But let's go a step further. This is how we're to respond to our our spouses when they're not faithful to us. Because we're not faithful to God, but God still loves us. And in turn, we as God's people are to be faithful to them to show the divine pattern. Do you see that? It's a divine pattern. You be faithful. It's not about your relationship. It's not about, as a priority, what you want from this relationship. It is about your display of my faithfulness. That's what he wants us to do. You see what a different picture that is in marriage? My wife cannot make me perpetually happy. I cannot make her perpetually happy. And to try to get that out of each other is foolishness. And it will ultimately lead to disastrous effects because we are looking for the other one to fulfill me. And God says, that's not why I created marriage. I created you to show my oneness, my faithfulness to the world that watches so that the world will want to come to me and have the oneness that you experience with me. It's a witness. Do you see why movements like Black Lives Matter destroy the foundation that marriage is meant to be? Go live with a man, man. Go live with a woman, woman. Go dress as a man, woman. Be a woman, man. That's not about just feeling good. 
That's not just about saying, oh, I feel this inwardly. No, that's the sin in there. What God is saying is, no, look, I created you to be a certain way to display yourself as a picture of my righteousness. And organizations like Black Lives Matter come along and say, we want to tear away all that is what God proclaims. And that's the words they're not using. But that's always what Satan does. That's always what he does. He takes what seems to be right in the inner emotion and he tries to create something from it that's not right. And so we come back to the foundation of the truth, the word of the Lord. And God says, here's the truth. And that's what Jesus is saying. In the beginning, right, Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, what? Give your wife a a writing of a divorcement. Great, awesome, wonderful. Don't like this woman anyway. She burnt the chicken. Stain on my laundry. I mean, really, it had gotten that bad. But Jesus says, but I'm telling you, God come in the flesh. God hates divorce. Why? Because it is a picture of our oneness with him and his oneness with us. Just as Hosea had no right to get rid of Gomer, you and I have no right to get rid of our spouse. We really don't. Because God is the model of marriage. God makes no promises that he breaks, and neither does Jesus, and neither do we. Neither we to make promises that we are planning to break. In fact, that's what you said on your wedding day, right? You remember that? I know. I know. We were talking about this in the early service, first service. Some people are saying, oh, I I purposely left those statements out of my vows. Okay, well, you can do that, but that's not going to change the truth. Right? God has said, you promised to love each other till death do us part. One final note on Hosea, a beautiful picture here. Hosea 14, verse 4, look what God says. I will heal their apostasy. You know what apostasy is? Apostasy are, apostates are those people who know the truth about God but walk away. They've made a confession or a profession of faith say they believe, there's a point in time where they live what they say they believe, but then after some time they walk away from the faith, that's an apostate. Well, that's what Israel had done. God says, I'm going to heal all of that. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. What's he saying? He's saying, I will love them like nothing happened. Wow. Like nothing happened. He said, wait a minute. Is that possible? I knew one guy, in fact, the same guy that was I was telling you about earlier that said you could go out and party hardy in the Catholic Church as long as you ask the priest to forgive you. He came in one day, one Monday morning, I believe it was, and I said, bro, what's wrong? He said, I just found out my wife was cheating on me over the weekend. Kind of finally came out. And for the next several months, he was like a zombie by his own words. But then I noticed... One day I asked him how he was doing. He says, yeah, my wife and I are still together. He says, we're going to work it out. And man, I've never forgotten that because I thought to myself, how in the world could you do that? Well, now I understand. And I don't know that he understood that at that point. And I don't know that they're still together because that's been a lot of years ago. But what I do understand now is that that's the heart of the true believer. People will say, we don't love each other anymore. 
So God has given us peace about our divorce. Listen, can I just say lovingly and graciously and as kindly as I know how, God has not given you peace about your divorce? What you have done, now listen, let's put it where the rubber meets the road. What you have done is exactly what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. They took what the culture said and what they felt internally and they made that okay. And Jesus comes and obliterates that thinking and says, look, you were taught that this is okay to divorce your wife for this reason or whatever the reason might be. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you, that's not of the Father. You have changed something into what God had never intended in the first place. Now, I'm not talking about the concessions. We're going to get to some concessions in the next message. I just wanted to cover all of this in this point this morning because I feel like these, this is a foundational thing. And plus, it's been three weeks since we had our minds in this. Marriage is a human picture of a heavenly reality. Listen to what the Lord says in this quote, and we'll close. Christ loves the church so much that he is faithful to the end. Loving us when we're unlovable. Ever met somebody that was unlovable? Yeah. Loving us when we're unloving. In other words, we don't reciprocate it. Loving us when we're unlovely. In other words, again, sometimes you ugly. Right? I mean, sometimes we just stink of sin. But he's faithful. And this is God's standard. This is God's pattern. So God says, no divorce. Now, does he give some concession? Yes, he does. And Jesus made mention of one in Matthew chapter 5, except for unchastity or unfaithfulness. And we'll talk about that next time. Okay? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy, the absolute joy of knowing that you know we are unfaithful time and time again, but yet you still love us. Lord, the times where we abandon you out of emotion or frustration or fear or anger or whatever it might be, chasing after the world and its treasures, but yet you are always faithful. Lord, would you help us this morning to, first of all, confess our unrighteousness to you? Confess how much we have missed this divine picture of marriage and what it's representing? Would you help us, Lord, to confess the sin of adulterating our relationship with our spouses and creating idols either in them or through them or for them or whatever may be the case. Lord, would you forgive us for how we set our marriages to be about us? And would you show us in the days ahead and the years ahead that everything that we've learned today is absolutely true? that when we look at the violations that we make with one another, that we will remember your faithfulness to us when we violate you? Would you keep resonating in our minds throughout the days of our lives how much you love us and what you did for us on the cross at Calvary? Lord, when you hung there 
naked, displaying your human body. You hung there because you knew that was the price of our sin. That was the price that was having to be paid for our ungodliness, our vileness, our wickedness before the Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you from a gracious and open heart. As a church collectively, Lord, we we honor you and, and we worship you because we see the filth that we live in in our minds and in our souls. And we know that you have come to rescue us from ourselves and the tyranny of eternal damnation. Lord, would you also help the hearts of those that have been through divorce and are realizing that it was not of you, but that out of your grace and your mercy, you have given a concession and that even in the midst of disobedience you still love and you still receive and you still accept when we come to you with repentant hearts. Lord, would you help that person that's contemplating marriage today to see what marriage really is? Would you help the one who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior to be open, to have their hearts open, their spiritual vision open? to trust you as Lord and Savior because of your great faithfulness? Would you help them to see that you will never, 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 never leave them? Lord, we'll trust you for these things and we'll honor you because you're a great and awesome God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.